0: Well, it's my privilege to open God's word again to you this morning. And uh, we're gonna be in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And these are the final applications of a grand book. This is a book of the Bible that is not something you just jump into and read it and understand all that's there the first time that you read it. It's chock full with a lot of, connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Even reading Leviticus sets a little bit of a baseline to understanding the application in the New Testament and the New Covenant with what was going on in the Old. So all of this was hard sledding and hard work to go through the book of Hebrews. As, blessing, as much of a blessing as it was, it's, it's, a, it's really not for the faint of heart. You have to put your mind and your heart into it. And so... Felt like we did that for a couple years and now we're here and we're at the last few verses and I'm going really slowly and I'm kind of doing it on purpose because I'm asking myself, why are these applications here at the tail end of all this meat? What are we supposed to do with it? And we've talked about the mission of the church in welcoming strangers and hospitality. We've talked about identifying with the persecuted church. We've talked about the, the marriage bed being undefiled and the, the priority of marriage, biblical masculinity, biblical femininity in a culture that's gone a little bit off from that, not a little bit, uh, a lot of bit from that and understanding the, the truthfulness and the power of a monogamous marriage. Anyway, we also talked about money and you know, that, that is where the heart is. And we're talking a lot about giving in the midst of uh, a world pandemic where you don't always know where your resources are going to come from or if they're going to be there and how we still need to be givers. And we need to think that through. So these are Potent applications, I hope, for all of us, whether we're talking about persecution and some of the pressures that come on from the culture, and we're feeling some of that, whether we're talking about money, whether we're talking about um, being moral in an immoral culture, these are real applications. Well, now we're getting into one that hits home within the church. You almost have the outside applications. Now, this one's the inside application, and it's leadership the word leadership is repeated three times. Uh, the word leaders, I should say, is repeated three times in these final verses. Verse 7, verse 17, and verse 24. And we're talking about leaders who, who taught the word of God. It's, a, it's, it's the testimony of mentors with the word of God and how powerful that is. And we talked about that last week. And I really identified that the word leader is the same person functionally within a church That we have today in terms of pastors, in terms of elders, in terms of overseers. Those are three titles that mean one office. And the function of that leader is to give the word of God and to live the word of God. You give it out. Your authority is based on the truth of scripture. Nothing more, nothing less. You don't have authority basis um, from any other quadrant. There's no other backing to you in terms of spiritual authority than the word. That's it. We're just instruments, but then you've got to live it. And you've got to live it in a way that people could see it and follow it. They can see it and actually imitate. They can copy it. That was from our verse last time in verse seven. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate, imitate their faith. We need people in the church who are biblically qualified in terms of what they say, know, and speak, and then how they live in light of it. That's the atmosphere setting, culture setting, dynamic setting, blessing setting dimension in every church. It rises and falls on leadership. The ultimate leader is the next verse here, verse eight, Jesus Christ, who is the true senior pastor of every church. He's the head of every biblical church and the shepherds are the under shepherds that follow him. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. He's the anchor and the stability of church. So we know that now we're coming into verse nine, which picks up on point four of last week's sermon that I didn't get to. Point one was godly leaders, they base their authority on God's word. Point two, leaders live a life commensurate to God's truth. Point three, godly leaders yield themselves to Jesus Christ. Same yesterday, today, and forever. Now point four. What is point four? Point four is godly leaders protect their flock from false gospels. Godly leaders are shepherds. They're protectors. And this is Very explicitly clear from verse 17. We're not going to get there for probably two weeks, but it says, obey your leaders, same word, and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. Shepherds watch their flocks. It's as simple as that. Wolves come from the outside. Sometimes wolves hide themselves with inside from the inside of the church and the shepherds. Number one goal, a physical, real sort of outdoor shepherd is to keep those sheep alive. That's what they do. The number one goal of a shepherd, an under shepherd within a church is to keep the sheep alive, to protect them from wolves, to protect you from error to protect you from drifting away, straying away, going after the shiny thing that looks like gospel 2.0 that promises something it cannot promise, a false teaching promising, hey, I'll solve your wounded conscience if you'll just do this or if you just won't do that or you'll just follow this person or you'll believe this errant promise. All of that, tweaking of the gospel makes a true gospel, a false gospel and will take your eye off of Christ and will ultimately condemn you to an eternal hell if you follow that gospel into the next life. Shepherds live and die and they lay down their lives for the sheep to protect the flock from going into error. It's important to understand that you say, well, where in verse 9 do we see a leader protecting his sheep or flock? Well, this leader, the the writer of the book of Hebrews, one of the leaders is protecting his flock by giving a clear warning. And that's verse nine. He's modeling the application of verse 17. How do you keep watch over the souls of those for whom are in the church? You warn them, you say the hard thing. Verse nine, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. This church was into a false devotion. You see that word devotion. They were worshiping the practices of I can eat this or I can't eat that. It's basically all it's going on. The food in and of itself is not the issue. It's the haves and the have-nots. I can have this. I can't have that. I'm better off because I ate this. I'm better off because I did not eat this. It's that kind of legalism that had come into the church to take the, the eye off the ball, per se, where people would not focus on Christ, but they're focusing on themselves and how good they are at rule-keeping. The shepherd's putting it on the line, saying, I'm just going to say it straight out. And it's where a shepherd says, I love you. I'll put the relationship at risk. I'll say the hard thing. You need to run from that. You need to run from legalism. That's what this shepherd is doing. And he is modeling this point that is the call to protect the flock from false gospels. Um, people, uh, this, is a, this is a theme throughout the book of Hebrews, by the way, Hebrews chapter two. It says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Why? Lest we drift away from it, drifting, drifting away. It's the same word family as verse nine. Do not be led away. It's the idea of drifting away. You're in the boat, you're headed to the rocks. You're gonna blow up. Or as Jude puts it, there are false leaders that will come into the church, and some of them come through TV media or whatever, and promise all kinds of false gospels. And they are called hidden reefs in Jude one twelve. Hidden reef, very dangerous thing. If you're surfing, you don't want to hit the reef. It's hitting concrete. It'll shred your knees up. You almost don't want to surf without a helmet if you are surfing over a reef. If you're in a boat. And you think you're fine, but you hit the reef suddenly that you couldn't see coming. It'll rip the hull of the boat out and you could drown. This is the severity of warning that's given here. And I want to say this. This is a sermon that in the flow of the end of Hebrews, we're talking about leadership. But I want to talk to you personally in terms of your responsibility to discern truth from error. The leader, the shepherd is called and commanded to be qualified to discern between truth and error, right and wrong. They have to know their Bibles. That's for sure. But you as believers and sheep also are called and commanded to be able to be warned and discern the difference between truth and error. You have to be equipped to not fall away or be led astray. I don't want to hear one day about one of you here in the room or through live stream that has drifted away, that has fallen away. Just you're in the boat. You're not, you're not focused. And suddenly the current is taking you into danger, imperceptibly to the rocks, to the reef, because the Bible says that you are spiritually minded. First Corinthians two, the natural man doesn't understand or receive the things of the spirit, but you aren't naturally minded. You have the light of Christ. You are called to discern truth from error. And that's what this shepherd is calling. That's what this leader is calling the church to have and to be. There's subtle temptations. You say, what am I supposed to be aware of? Well, a false doctrine is a very, very deceptive thing. Uh, verse 9 calls them diverse and strange teachings. Diverse. It, uh, the diversity, or it could be variegated or strange, meaning it's bizarre. Uh, on the outside, a false doctrine will not look that strange. I just want you to be clear. It's not going to look that bizarre. It's it's going to look like food that you want to eat. That's got a little bit of cotton candy on the outside of it. It's got to look good for someone to bite on it. Okay. It's not going to look like crazy bizarre where you're going. I would never associate with that or this. It's got to look warm. It's got to look inviting. It might promise community. It might promise um, self-achievement awards, right? Where you can checklist things off and feel better about yourself. It'll promise that you're right with God. It might promise some kind of uh, amazing eternal life that's extra biblical that the Bible never promises or describes. Though the Bible does, um, does promise amazing eternal life. There are false errant sort of Candy canes that are put out there for you to want so desperately. That's what false teaching looks like on the outside. It, it, it looks similar to what the gospel promises, but it's a little different. But on the inside, once you diagnose and open that thing up, you'll see that there's a wide chasm between a grace alone gospel where you are saved by what Christ did alone versus grace plus anything else where it's something else that you add to it. That's a wide gap. That's what makes a teaching like that bizarre. But it will look like the gospel. Remember Galatians 1, uh, Paul said, you know, if anyone preaches another gospel, let them be anathema. But it's still called another gospel. It'll look like a gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, Paul says, you know, he's warning the Corinthians not to be deceived by the angel of light, Satan. Satan dresses himself up to look just like the gospel, to look just like you know, a kind person to follow, and then he preaches another Jesus, still naming that false leader, that false figure of the gospel Jesus, and still calling it gospel. That's what happens. You know, it's true. I mean, I the cults that come up to my door, I don't really dialogue with them. I don't really engage them. Second John chapter, you know, Second John it's one chapter, but verse ten. It says not to even give them a greeting because I don't want to inject that kind of conversation into my heart because people are coming like angels of light. They look good on the outside. They don't look very different than Christian people. They're good-natured people, typically well, well-groomed, well-put-together, well-mannered, well-scripted. And they're saying, hey, can't we just get along and be friends because we're really not that different from each other. And guess what? That's true. It's not very different on the outside. We get together, we sing songs, we read the same Bible. Hey, we've got this extra Bible, this extra book of Mormon that we want to add to the equation. Or we've got the new century Bible with the Jehovah's Witnesses that, you know, it, it basically is your Bible. It's a little bit different. And that's true. And you want to run from those conversations because they entice people. They promise things that are false. But if you open up those Bibles, and I'm not encouraging you to do that, if you understand those doctrines, they say that Jesus is a created being, and we know that's not true. And that is the wide strangeness and and difference between the true gospel and a false gospel. So it looks all the same on the outside, but on the inside, once you understand really what's going on, it's a wide chasm between the two and the Bible here right at the end, right at the end of Hebrews is warning people from engaging these temptations. You say, okay, what are, are these really that big a deal? I know to, you know, stay away from Mormonism and Jehovah's witness. So what are you talking about? Well, there are other more subtle false teachings that enter into the church that divert people and distract people all of the time. Let me just list a few one. And, and by the way, This list, this list is kind of a, a toe stomping list. Like, I don't know if you have your steel toed boots on. I mean, you want to have steel toed boots on, but you also want to have a soft heart and hear what I have to say. I'm not trying to upset anyone with this list, but I just feel as a shepherd obligated to tell you and warn you about things that insert into the church and confuse people and lead people astray. First one, egalitarianism. This is uh, where everybody is on equal footing, no matter what. Now, in Christ, and there'll be, there'll be a truth to every, every ism that I'm about to say. That 98% of it's true, and then there's 2% that's false, and that 2% will poison you. That's what I'm trying to convey to you. Egalitarianism. It basically says that you know, men and women in the church can all do the same exact roles, no matter what. There's no distinction between a man and a woman. Feminism is part of this, where where womanhood wants to dominate men. It wants to um, interrupt the home life. Headship and submission makes no sense in an egalitarian culture. Women need to be preaching. You know, even just as pastors, they need to be exalted in that way. And that is not what the Bible teaches. That's just one of the isms. And I've got a bunch more, but we'll see where it goes. Authoritarianism. There's the authority hermeneutic. The charismatics um, love to prop people up, hyper charismatics, and they'll say, you have dominion over the world. You have dominion over the angels. You have dominion over this earth. Now, did God give us dominion? Yes, that's true. But under God's sovereign care in a fallen world, We're not solving fallenness. We're not able to command people to be healed on the spot. That's dominionism, authoritarianism, mysticism, seeing things that, you know, in dreams and elevating dreams and revelations to the level of scripture. Or the idea of two-level, two-tier Christianity, those who speak in tongues and those who don't speak in tongues, those who have an extra blessing and those who don't. That's not Christianity. Is there tongue speaking that is documented in scripture? Yes. And I could talk all about that and and give you a perspective on that. But the haves and the have nots, the two-tier Christianity, that is a false system. Ceremonialism, the idea of celebrating relics or ambiance. anthropocentrism is self-esteem, gospel, victim culture, legalism, eat this, do this, or separate from that. If you separate from that, you're more spiritual than the other person. It's a stronger and weaker brother, stuff that was being corrected. Cultism, people worship, extra biblical, anything that's on par with the Bible, I mentioned that. Liberalism, social justice, do-gooding to make yourself right with God. Experientialism, where there's a demon under every bush, anti-authoritarianism where people are, and I'm not saying it's wrong to meet in homes. I mean, hey, you're out in TV land meeting in homes right now, but there are people who, who want to make a spirituality and make it more authentic by meeting in you know, your pajamas or, or meeting around a meal and saying, we don't really need doctrine. We have our Bibles and we'll just sort of go with the flow of Christianity. That is everywhere. And it's, you have to have doctrine. You have to have teaching to ground your church. I'm not saying it's wrong to meet in a home, but again, 98% of what these things represent are good. But then you have some error. You have a, uh, all kinds of things. I, too many to get into. You have the health and wealth gospel. You have Pentecostal oneness that T.D. Jakes um, promoted. You you have this idea that God only um, comes to us as the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. Sort of. You have Jesus-only movements that don't want to talk about the Holy Spirit or the fatherhood of God. You have Jesus movements that are the Kenotic um, heresy that say that Jesus is only a man. He kind of divested all his deities so we can relate to him. Uh, I'm just trying to put this on your radar because as sheep, you are commanded to be discerning. And as fathers, you should discern that for your children. As mothers in a home, like like a mom raising a Timothy as a single mom, you, you have discernment for those kids, shepherding care. That's what we do as pastors. That's what leaders do within the church. But you are also a leader of your own spirituality, your own temple as the priesthood of the believer, and you have others that you need to discern on behalf of and be careful for. So the goal of being discerning is not to weaponize you as a heresy hunter. I want to make sure that's clear. I'm not trying to get you to be a blogger and, and, you know, take on heresies. I had a, uh, it was a good friend who was at a Christian college where I used to work. And um, I was the resident director. He was my RA. He was in my dorm. And I hired him because he's brilliant. He's basically Christian. He was Christian um, Ben Shapiro. I mean, he was just, he's just, he could think and talk and, at, at the speed of light and intimidated all the Bible professors with all that he knew. He was sharp and, and he was a great guy. But what he would do is he would actually read the Book of Mormon and read the New Century Bible and read other extra biblical religious literature in the name of being able to win people to Christ. And so he would read that, and I would warn him and say, "You know, bad company corrupts good morals. You're you're inviting a false teaching into your house. You're violating Second John one ten, and your whole spirituality is about winning a debate. Well, these are these are bad methods methods for Christian growth. These are." These are dead-end streets. These are things that will, that will doom and ultimately calcify and sear and, and harden your heart when you feel like you are a Christian know-it-all. It'll mess you up. And ultimately, this guy, he graduated, he went to a liberal seminary from a conservative school to a liberal school, and out of that became an, a liberal Episcopalian pastor and became, 25 years ago, one of the first pastors to marry a homosexual couple in Southern California. And I called him and, you know, I confronted him and quoted him back to himself in terms of his beliefs. And he ultimately dismissed me. But I think it comes from being enamored with what's false instead of latching on to what's true and truth. So how do we how do we fight False teaching. How do we combat the diverse and strange teachings? Look at the second half of verse nine. We're going to dive into the whole section on this next week. But look at the second half of verse nine. It says, don't be led away by diverse and strange teaching teachings for it is good for the heart. This is a battleground here. The heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Strengthened by grace. The word strengthened is conviction. Conviction. It's the idea of having an assurance about something. The way to combat what's false is by clinging to what is true. Having the genuine article clear in your hands and in your minds. Knowing the gospel. Regularly being, watch this, refreshed by the gospel. We always need a regular refresh in the The truth. Grace is saving grace, but saving grace is given to us for us to be buoyed up again and again in our faith. What is the gospel being strengthened, confirmed, secured and established in truth. That's what keeps us from going adrift, showing up to church, putting yourself under the gospel, listening to me go for a half hour with the Bible. That will help you. I'm just telling you. It's, it's a great relief to me as a pastor to know that whether you enjoyed this or not, it was still good for you. It, it's true. Just by coming under the truth, It's like practice. You're just going back to practice again. You might not like practice, but it prepares you for the game. It prepares you for the tournament. You got to keep going and putting yourself under truth. Romans 15, 8 is where Paul says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. And here's the same word. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, it's the idea that he came as a Jew initially to the Jews to vindicate all the Old Testament promises and confirm that the gospel was all about him to the Jews. And many and most rejected him, but that was his goal. And that confirmation is the same kind of dynamic that we should have as Christians. 1 Corinthians six, we have Christ confirmed among us. Colossians 2.7, we are established in faith, built up in him, Hebrews 2.3. Um, The word of God was attested, it was confirmed, same word, to these Christians who had heard. It's always coming back to the original reset. It's good to do that with your health, relationships, money, sports, academics, life goals. It's part of what the um, stay at home and hunker down has done for me. I've had a big reset. How am I doing? How's my family? How are my finances? What are my priorities? How are my life rhythms? It's reset reset, reset. And we need to do that with the gospel. You have to. Having the genuine article in your hands. I remember the, you know, great coach Vince Lombardi who coached the um, Packers, Green Bay Packers. Oh, to have football again, right? Oh, to have fans. And some of you are going, I could care less about football. Praise God. It's gone. But, you know, God bless you. I'm different than you are. I don't know if that makes me stronger or weaker, probably weaker. But, um, but there's a, the great story of um, Coach Lombardi. He won three championships and they had lost a, a championship in the fourth quarter of the NFL championship game to the Philadelphia Eagles in a heartbreak defeat. And all of the team is said to have been looking forward to training camp and starting again that next year and building on what they had achieved from last year. And they made it all the way to the fourth quarter and blew a play and lost the championship. So we're going to build on that. And Coach Lombardi, Vince Lombardi, took things back to the basics where he gathered everybody out. Um, together at training camp and it was at the very beginning and he basically held up the pig skin in his right hand and said gentlemen this is a football you know it's like boy just get over yourselves you know this is the football this is where it all begins this is how you block you know put a helmet on you know let's start from peewee league and build from there that's what this is telling you to do go back to the grace of the gospel. You're saved by grace and not by works. I think that it's so easy to be led astray. I don't have time to get into this story, but I just still grieve over this lady that was in a church in um, a former pastorate where I was the associate pastor. And she allowed a Mormon piano teacher to mentor her kid And her husband was in seminary training and was kind of a star at our church. And he passively allowed this person to insinuate himself into the home life to the point where their newborn, the middle name, one of the middle names was named after this piano teacher. We confronted her. We confronted the situation. Ultimately, um, this man endeared her, brought Mormon missionaries over with cakes and stuff. And she was led astray and divorced the man and took the four kids and was baptized into the Mormon church. And she said, but I'm reading the doctrine and it's the same Lord between Mormonism and Christianity. Same Lord. And we're like, it's not the same Lord. That's a created being. Jesus is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. It's clear. But people get muddied up When they go in this direction. Well, ultimately, just to wrap up, we're going to be looking at foods. This is a teaser for next week. Um, It says not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. The, The food issue is a rehash of Leviticus 18 in the New Testament church. Obviously, persecution and pressures or whatever was causing people to doubt the grace alone gospel. Have you ever been there? where you go, look, there must be something more that's going to hold me up now and for eternity than just completely relying on grace. And so I'm going to go back to obeying some law of what I should eat or shouldn't eat, and that's going to help me. They were basically morphing what was prescribed as holiness under the old covenant to separate out ethnic Israel from the pagans, the surrounding nations. And they were morphing that into the New Testament church and saying, there must be a way that we can be more holy and more right with God by selecting this or not doing that. Well, guess what? That flies in the face of what the gospel solves. What did the gospel solve for you? The cross solved your sin riddled conscience, right? Before you were introduced into grace, if you're like me, you had a guilty conscience. You might have tried to solve your guilty conscience with human achievement, with trying to do something, having your good outweigh your bad. None of that works. The cross is the solvent. The cross is the only solution. Satan wants to do everything he can do to undermine your complete trust in the gospel of grace. Unrepentant people, they'll always bend doctrines. They'll change them. They'll twist them. They'll tweak them to try to make some sense of false security for themselves. It's always what happens. Repentant people will acknowledge their sin and accept the solution for their guilt, which is the cross and the grace alone of the gospel, falling fully into that. When you stand before Christ, what do you want to say? I solved my sin problem. By joining a cult? By having my good outweigh my bad? No. My sin problem is solved because of Christ Jesus, the Lord, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is my Lord. He is my covering. He is my master. That is my solution. That is my only answer.